Welcome to Brightcast by Shipbright. This is a re-recording of a previous episode, and I've learned that there are some things uh, that are in previous episodes that have prevented the uh, podcast from being distributed to other platforms like uh, iTunes or Google Podcasts. Uh, so I've gone back working. Uh, thank you very much to Anchor FM uh, customer support. They've been fabulous. Uh, so I've done some re-recording and I am now republishing it. So if you've heard this before, you can go ahead and gloss over it if you want. And if this is the first time that you've heard this because I'm now on a different platform, welcome aboard. Really great you're here. If you like the uh, podcast, please tell your friends. And uh, I'm really appreciative that you're here. On this episode of Brightcast, listener discretion is advised. There is reference to baboon genitalia, and also ganja. So, use your discretion. The trip to Kenya started to take form in the waning months of 1976. Friends of our family had been having dinner with some friends from Baltimore, and one of the dinner guests was a woman by the name of Betty Leslie Melville, who I quickly learned was a very active wildlife conservationist in Kenya. Well, the conversation turned to her life in Kenya, and Betty could tell a great story. And the thing about living in Kenya, and for that matter, in Alaska, where I lived, and I'll tell you more about that, is that the truth is stranger than fiction. And she was talking about her life there and what she was doing. And the topic of Joy Adamson of Born Free came up. And it turned out that she was training a leopard for a new Disney movie. And that actually she needed some interns to help with just some chores around her farm and her facility uh, while she was doing this. And so our friend said, well, I've, we've got some college kids that would probably love to do that. And they said, great. So the word went out and sure enough, the uh, three of us, our, my friend Pooh and her, our friend Suzanne and myself signed up and we were ready to go. And so we did all of the visas and got all the logistics done. And shortly before we were to leave in the spring of late winter of spring of 1977, the word had come that the baby leopard had been stolen. And as it turns out, and you probably already know this, but poaching and stealing wildlife is, is a perennial issue. It goes on to this day, but it caused us to reset our plans. Their daughter, Dancy, was home on holiday at the time frame we were going to be coming there. So she was going to be our guide, and they were assigning us a driver. His name was Kasim and we would go off on these safaris for two, three, four, five days at a time, come back to Nairobi, and then head in a different direction. We couldn't go down to the Serengeti in Tanzania because the border was closed. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't go to the famous Ngorongoro Crater. Uh, we couldn't go into Uganda uh, because that border was closed, as I explained in the previous episode, because of the divorce in the East African Union, and especially with Idi Amin. So there was plenty of places to go, plenty of things to see in Kenya, and that became our plan. So we, we flew from Philadelphia to Heathrow, and then Heathrow down to Nairobi, jet-lagged, and checked in to the new Stanley Hotel. 
got on the plane to head to uh, Nairobi via Heathrow. There were a lot of logistics to take care of on the U.S. side. Uh, One was, uh, I was a junior at Bates College and uh, taking off from college for a period of time, three to four weeks, uh, back then was not a common occurrence. Uh, I had to go talk to the dean of students who did his best to talk me out of it, saying I'd be surprised at how many offers like this I would get in my lifetime. Let me give you a piece of advice. You don't get a lot of those offers in your lifetime. When you get an offer like that, take it, okay? Uh, So, and then of course, I had to go get permission from all of my professors. My advisor was incredibly supportive and he was like, you gotta go. And my other professors were uh, equally as wonderful. Uh, They knew an opportunity when they saw it. And then you had to get the shots. You had to get the yellow fever, typhoid. Uh, It was a cornucopia of bad things that they didn't want to have happen to you, and you had to get shots for them. And I remember having gone down to Portland, Maine, to the U.S. Health Service office, and I had to have like six shots, and they they said, well, we're going to give them to you all at once. And I'm like, okay, I don't care. Uh, What I didn't realize was that a couple of the vaccines were live viruses that could make you feel pretty sick. And sure enough, the day after I had these six shots, uh, I was laid out with some fevers and feeling really bad. Fortunately, it passed within 24 hours, uh, and I was good to go. So with my arms full of vaccine and permission, or at least tacit permission from the college, we hopped on the plane. And as I said, we landed in Nairobi after a long day and a half of flying. It wasn't like today where you've got these big planes that can, when we went to South Africa, we flew uh, directly from Heathrow to Johannesburg. And uh, we, we couldn't do it then. We, we were able to fly from Heathrow to Nairobi, but when we came back, we had to go via Khartoum, Sudan. I'll tell you about that later. So we landed all jet lagged, put our stuff into the Hotel Stanley, New Stanley Hotel, I should say. And then they said, well, listen, let's go for a warm up ride. There's a game park right outside Nairobi. Let's let's go do it. And we were all excited, you know, even though we were all foggy and jet laggy. It was like, let's do this. So Kasim picked us up in front of the new Stanley Hotel in uh, our van and took us to the Nairobi National Park, which is a game park literally right outside of Nairobi. You can see the cityscape in the background, and it's got rhino and elephant and uh, giraffe. We saw zebra, we saw giraffe. I'm not sure if we saw elephant uh, there, Uh, but the biggest thing we saw, and by the way, this is the part where I said earlier about listener discretion advice. Here it comes. So we parked about 300 feet in front of this beautiful acacia tree. It's one of those big umbrella-like trees that dot the African landscape. It's it's iconic and it's beautiful. It's what you think of when you think of like the plains of the Serengeti. And up in the trees, we could see this large group of baboons up there. And there were a lot of them. And Kasim stopped the car and he goes, 
they'll come to us. And sure enough, a bunch of them come scampering down the tree and come roaring across the plane at us. I, I started to put my window down because it's cool. These baboons, they're going to be friendly. You know, they'll, they'll want to put on a show for us. And Kasim looks at goes, no, you got to put the window up. And uh, sure enough, uh, the moment the uh, baboons with their colorful faces and their colorful butts uh, descended upon the van and immediately started screaming and yelling and, you know, their faces right in front of you with their big jaws. And I look over and one is trying to rip off the side view mirror of the van. Another one's got a hold of the windshield wiper. My face is pressed against the glass because I'm trying to get a view and see if I get a picture. Next thing I know, there's a baboon right there on the other side of the grass, slamming the glass with his little hands and then screaming at me with, you know, like saliva coming down. It was not what I expected. And these guys were pissed and they were letting us know that we were interlopers and we were not welcome. And Kasim turned around and goes, give this a moment. And sure enough, a few minutes later, uh, a bunch of the other baboons came down. These were the females. And they all come scampering over. Some have got little babies holding on. And they also descend upon the van. But they weren't going to be screaming at us. In fact, what they started to do was rub the balls of the male baboons to calm them down. And the one that was like right in front of me, you could just see him, his eyes kind of started to flutter and he started to calm down. You can almost hear the music going on in the background. And suddenly they were the most mellow group of baboons you'd ever seen. I think there's a life lesson there. Uh, I sometimes say to my wife equivalent, Holly, I'm a very upset baboon. I can tell you, however, I do not get the desired response, quite frankly, just the opposite. Now a quick word from one of my ad sponsors that helps keep this podcast free. We return back to the new Stanley Hotel after our game drive and uh, having learned lessons from baboons about life. Uh, had some sundowners and dinner and then tried to get some sleep because tomorrow is going to be our first full day. It's a seven-hour time difference between the East Coast of the United States and Nairobi. Uh, And it's a long flight, as I said, from Philadelphia to Heathrow, Heathrow to Nairobi. So as I'm trying to lay in bed, the music from a nightclub down below started wafting up. And the mellifluous sounds of play that funky music white boy wafted up into my room, thinking, well, wasn't expecting that. The next morning, Kasim picked us up to take us over to Betty and Jock Leslie Melville's home. We drove to the suburbs of Langada and into this beautiful home. I don't know how many acres. It had to be at least five. It was probably a lot more than that. And then you came around the sweeping driveway and in the front yard, there were baby giraffe just grazing. They were right there in front of the house. And the beautiful stone manor, it was a, a stunningly beautiful home. And Betty and Jacques met us. We made some small talk Uh, They took us over to the facilities that they had for where they were rehabilitating, captured uh, Rothschild giraffes. Most of them were younger. Some of them were older who had been injured. And uh, there were a couple of babies there. Maybe there's just one. It was Marlon was his name. 
And I remember Giacometti said, well, do you want to feed him? We're like, yeah. And I, looking around for a bottle. So said, no, no, here, they gave you a bowl and you dipped your hand in the bowl. So it was all covered with this thick sort of milk, much thicker than regular milk. And you held it up and the giraffe uh, took right to it like it was its mother's breast. And the giraffes have pretty powerful mouths and they got long tongues. And next thing you know, I feel like I'm getting my whole hand sucked into its uh, mouth and it just starts taking in the milk and I'm going back, dipping it in and putting it back in. And uh, it was great. And by the way, I will be posting pictures of this on my Instagram and Facebook pages account so you can actually see what I'm talking about. So we had uh, a wonderful afternoon with them. We got to know them a little better. Jock was telling us about his background. He was a dual citizen of both uh, England and Kenya. And his family had come over from England as part of the original colonists, as you may know. Kenya, Tanzania, at that time it was Tanganyika and Zanzibar, and Uganda made up British East Africa. Prior to that, the Germans had control of the colony of Tanganyika and, Z and Zanzibar, uh, but then the British took over. And starting in the 60s, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya uh, got their independence. Kenya had to go through a very difficult time when in the 50s, the 1952, there was the Mau Mau uprising, uh, which was a quite bloody affair and convinced the British that they didn't really want to have these colonies. It never always played out, I think, the way the colonists thought they would. So Jock was a British army officer, and he had served in the Kenyan rifles uh, with the Brits. And then after independence, he was a colonel in the Kenyan rifles uh, with the sovereign country of Kenya fascinating gentleman, but he also had to walk a very tight line in the politics of East Africa. So in addition to having his own safari company, uh, Jock and Betty uh, got deeply involved in the conservation of an endangered subspecies of giraffe in East Africa called the Rothschild giraffe. Now the main species of giraffe in Kenya at that time were the Maasai, uh, the reticulated, and I believe it was the northern, but the Rothschild giraffe were uh, endangered. And they had their friend Jock Rutherford uh, would go and rescue uh, babies and injured Rothschild giraffe up in the Rift Valley region. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, this guy, Jock Rutherford, he would lasso the giraffe I'm not kidding, I saw it with my own eyes, uh, on his horse, who only had one working eye. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. So as we were talking with Jock and Betty uh, more and more, uh, they're very warm and uh, lovely people. And they said, listen, why don't you guys stick around tonight? We'll call up some of the local you know, expats and we'll have you guys dinner party. We've got to go out for, a, for an event. Betty and Jock were very active socially. Uh, they were really kind of at the, the top of the social scene in Nairobi and in Kenya at that time for their work, both as a business person, but also for their conservation work. So that evening, uh, a group of other young people showed up. There was Gustav. He was uh, Swedish, I suppose, told Swedish royalty or 
something like that, and some other interesting people who all had very interesting stories. We sat down in the living room making small talk, and uh, one of them pulled out a uh, like a Skippy peanut butter jar uh, full of pot. It was well ground. It was. I mean, my eyes bugged out of my head. I'm a college kid, and I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And so they were just chatting, having a couple of beers. Tusker beer, by the way, is uh, a beer of choice there in, in Nairobi, in Kenya. And one of our members, and I won't identify who, so as to protect the guilty, uh, was in between, uh, kind of in the middle of, of everything. And so as the joint went by, she would have toke and then it would go on and when it would come back she'd have another toke and so she was getting double toked and at one point one of the kids said ah, you may want to go easy because the marijuana here in Africa is a lot stronger than what you might get in the states and marijuana grew everywhere in Africa it, it I think it was illegal but really, nobody cared. Everyone was smoking it. It was all over the place. It was practically a weed. Anyway, so we went and had a beautiful dinner in their dining room, the service. And my friend who had been in the middle, I was sitting next to. And I looked over at one point, and she's staring into her plate, giggling uncontrollably. And I realized she was just stoned as a bat and could barely function. We had to help her. Uh, out of the house later that evening. But it was a great dinner. It was a great time. So despite the fact that we were paying customers, if you will, of Jock's Safari Company, we became really good friends with uh, Betty Leslie Melville and Jock. And basically their house, even though we were staying at the New Stanley when we would come back into Nairobi from our excursions, we were always over at Jock and Betty's house. Uh, it became the place for us to hang out at. And a couple of years ago, I was watching, I think it was on the History Channel or something, and it started talking about this house in Kenya outside of Nairobi uh, that was doing giraffe conservation. My ears picked up, and suddenly they're showing pictures of the house, the house that I was in. And they started, it was called the Giraffe Manor, and you can look it up online. And apparently, as I said, Betty and Jacques have passed on, but I think it's one of their sons has taken on the cause. It's continuing the mission of the giraffe conservation. And you can go there and see the giraffe and hang out and feed them or do whatever they do. But when we were there, we would, you know, go feed Marlin, the baby giraffe. Uh, I remember one time having breakfast uh, with Betty and the ladies and uh, the giraffe stuck its head into the dining area. Uh, the breakfast area, I should say, uh, looking for a little handout or something. And, you know, Betty's in the middle of a story trying to tell a story and, you know, pushing the giraffe's uh, head out the uh, the window without even looking at it because apparently he does this all the time. It's almost like the dog coming to the table and you weren't trying to shoo him away. So uh, never had that happen before. And Betty had a great sense of humor. Uh, she, it was a bit naughty, uh, but she was funny. And uh, apparently she appreciated my humor. I taught her how to sing Sweden Low Sweet Chariot in hand signs, which isn't really an approved uh, song. It's just what you did in college. Uh, and I'll let you uh, think about what the possible hand signs for phrases like coming for to carry me home 
Anyway, she thought that was probably one of the funniest things she'd ever seen. I love it when I can get somebody laughing hard like that. So after spending some time with Betty and Jock and say we'd go there in between our uh, our safaris, the next morning after our, our dinner party, we, we were headed to Kilimanjaro. So the next morning, we awoke and packed into our van with Kasim and Dancing. And we were off down to the Tanzanian border at the foot of Kilimanjaro. And I was really excited about going to see Kilimanjaro. It's, it just brings me back to thinking about Ernest Hemingway and those pictures you see of this huge dormant volcano coming out of the plains of Africa all by itself up to the sky uh, and couldn't wait. And the fact that we were also down there in Maasai country, uh, seeing the real Maasai herding their cattle, very exciting. And I remember we were driving and it was a long drive from Nairobi down there. And I kept looking for Kilimanjaro, expecting it to just jump out at me. Like if you were driving uh, in Colorado when you first saw the Rockies, there they were. There's no mistaking it. And I kept looking and looking and we stopped at a, uh, uh, a Maasai village that was selling some trinkets and souvenirs. And I, I got out and I'm looking around and I said to Kasim, I said, where's Kilimanjaro? And he goes, it's right there. And I had been looking at this cloud bank, but it wasn't a cloud bank. It was the top of Kilimanjaro just taking up to my view, my perspective, the whole horizon. And the clouds, of course, were the snows of Kilimanjaro. And once my perspective changed, I just remember my jaw dropping and go, oh my God. It is beautiful. It is stunning. How cool. And I know some of you probably listening may have gone and hiked to the top. Very cool. I'd like to do that. So we ended up going down uh, to this lodge, game lodge, where we would spend the next couple of days uh, doing some game drives, uh, looking for leopard, elephant, rhino, giraffe, Cape buffalo, the big five. And uh, we were sitting there in the afternoon having a sundowner under this beautiful sort of uh, the shade of a bougainvillea covered trestle. And I had my camera with me and one of the owners came out and said, uh, it's a great day and just making small talk. He said, uh, he saw my camera and said, uh, keep your hand on that camera. And I'm like, okay, why? And he goes, uh, the monkeys will steal it. <laughs> I started laughing and he goes, I'm serious. And he looks up and he points, and there's this little black-faced vervet monkey poking its face between the colorful bougainvillea looking at me. And uh, he looked around, and there were more. And sure enough, as we're sitting there talking, you could see a little hand come out of the bougainvillea going for my camera uh, strap. And I don't know, were these guys trained like in Oliver Twist or something, you know, they're going to take it back to the King, uh, King Monkey and he's going to sell them, uh, you know, at a pawn shop. Anyway, so uh, you had to keep your valuables on you. Uh, or, or I should say you had to keep your valuables close by. And I learned that the next morning when I woke up and my room had uh, this beautiful view of Kilimanjaro, the planes going to it and then it's sweeping up and it had a Dutch door. I love Dutch doors. So uh, earlier that morning, I had opened the top up because I wanted to get a little breeze. I wanted more of the view. And as I'm kind of drifting in and out of sleep, waking up, all of a sudden, one of the monkeys pops up. 
and he's looking at me and he keeps his eye on me and he's, his left hand is going for the camera. And I watched and watched and finally ended up throwing a pillow at him to get rid of him. But you got to be careful. If you've got monkeys down there, they're going to stay. It was time to move on from our lodge at the base of Kilimanjaro. But even 40 plus years later, I can still close my eyes and remember looking at the snows of Kilimanjaro at sunset, where the rosy glow would illuminate on the snows. I had a cold Tusker beer in my hand and just thinking, what? a beautiful place in this world. Truly one of God's magnificent creations. But it was time to move on. So uh, we jumped in the van and we started heading over to Savo and Amboseli. Um, along the way, we stopped at some uh, Maasai cultural centers, uh, took in some of the history and the culture of the Maasai, and it was time to go. So next episodes, we're going to talk about the game lodges that you can stay at in Kenya, how they're constructed, uh, what's cool about them. And we're going to go over to the Rift Valley in western Kenya near the Ugandan border where Jock Rutherford was doing his thing with rescuing uh, the Rothschild giraffe. And then we'll go down to the coast, to Malindi, which is north of Mombasa, and then up to Samburu, Turkana, where there was a drought and the lions had turned to eating people. <laughs> <laughs>